This is One in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. One in 59 is a weekly show devoted to topics related to autism spectrum disorder. Good morning and welcome to One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, and this morning I'm speaking with Michael John Carley. Um, Michael John, good morning. Thank you for coming on the show, and it's great to hear your voice again. Uh, thank you very much, Eliza. It's great to hear yours again as well. So uh, for our listeners who may not know, um, Michael John, we're off air. We were just talking about being sort of veterans here in, in the field and, and life life of autism and uh, and working with and, and uh, helping raise awareness and, and um, providing consultation and just working within the field. So you have been doing this as somebody diagnosed on the spectrum along with your son for quite a long time. Can you give us a sense of how many years it's been that you've been really focused your your personal and professional energies towards, you know, writing, um, engaging with other organizations, consulting. How long have you been doing this? Wow, that's a really good question. I'm, and I feel like I'm being aged out a little bit here, but that's okay. <laughs> it's been almost 20 years, Eliza. Wow. And really the story sort of starts, you know, back in the day when I'm a starving playwright by night, but during the daytime, I actually have kind of a cool, you know, quote unquote, stupid day job. And that was as a very very minor league diplomat operating out of the United Nations. And I was the UN NGO rep for um, sort of a left-of-center veterans organization called Veterans for Peace and did a lot of work abroad. Did some work in Bosnia, but the biggest thing I did was actually a, I was a project director for a thing called the Iraq Water Project. And please keep in mind, this is before the invasion and during the Saddam days, so it was very Mm -hmm. tricky stuff. Um, But we were repairing water treatment facilities, which had been rendered inoperable due to sanctions in the highest hit area of need in the country, which at the time was near the Basra uh, area. Uh, UNICEF was citing that one, something like, you know, horrific child, and I forget the statistics, but, you know, the infant mortality rates were not good whatsoever, and um, that particular area was the highest need. And right around the same time, my, you know, then two to four-year-old, depending on where we're talking about, is going through the same telltale signs as so many of the parents that you've come across and that we've all come across. Mm -hmm. Uh, And because of the genetic nature of all this stuff, they start looking at dear old daddy out of the corner of their eyes. And one thing leads to another. And he and I were literally diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome one week apart in late 2000. Wow. And as you and I and many of our, you know, many of our listeners right now may not remember or may not know because they've come into this, um, you know, far sooner than the year 2000. But, you know, any anything along the autism spectrum really had the stigma or the connotation of being something inherently broken and awful. Um, even Asperger's syndrome back then, you know, it's what, what I look back on and take the most pride in, I think is just how we've really not only turned a corner to reducing the stigma and the negative iconography surrounding these words, including Asperger's, which back then we weren't summoning images of Albert Einstein when we said those words. No, no, no. And that, you know, it's been a very, very long journey to making things not only, you know, sort of a level playing field of positive versus negative, but, you know, we're now in an age where we're able to accentuate some of the potential positives and really strive to make those happen. So uh, it's been a long, it's been a long haul. Absolutely. It must be wild for you to, you know, I mean, now we've got, uh, I mean, there's many, many different avenues that you could go in terms of uh, the progress that's been made. There's there's a lot, a totally different culture when it comes to, I think, employment and skill building, uh, education. Yep 
fashion has changed. Things like Muppets on Sesame Street, you know, sort of yep. normalizing yep. things and and um, and increasing awareness in such creative ways uh, to to which I think I think have all been very positive. Um, although maybe a painful journey um, in terms of how long it's taken and and then looking to see how far we still have to go. But but I go back to to the to the two thousand when you and your your then four year old son were diagnosed a week apart, both with Asperger's syndrome. First of all, uh, now your son, I'm trying to do quick math. He's about 23. Is that correct? <laughs> 22. You're almost 23 in July, though. Okay, so I'm close. Um, And how is he doing? He's doing great. He's doing great. He was one of these uh, kids that just could do no wrong in his schooling, and he was in more specialized schools through grade school up until eighth grade, and then he went to Bay Ridge Prep in Brooklyn. He was, he got a, um, basically a free ride to uh, Grinnell College, which is uh, Warren Buffett's old school out in Iowa. I really didn't, you know, being an East Coast guy, I hadn't really heard of it um, beforehand, both for academics and for baseball. And, uh, but he got there and he was struggling a little bit, like, you know, so many other kids um, that we've just, you know, sort of learned, you know, just weren't exactly ready, you know, to, to make the complete transition to being fully independent. Sure. Uh, so he, you know, we brought him home. We were like, okay, you know, just take a break from school and uh, we want you to, you know, get whatever you need back and then we'll head back. And the kid takes the New York City real estate exam at age 19. Wow. And passes. And suddenly just, you know, he's, you know, like we all on the spectrum, you know, have the potential for, if there's a passionate interest, you know, we will rewrite the meaning of the word passionate. Yeah. And, you know, so for, you know, years, it's like, you know, I've been coming in. I don't know if he's going to go back to school or not. I think he will, because he'll have to at some point. But he loves, loves, loves what he's doing. Absolutely loves it. I go in and I meet with my kid and, and uh, you know, he's wearing a tie and we eat dinner at our favorite Cuban Chinese restaurant, and I want him to shut up because I can't stand all the talk about real estate. But at the same point, I'm so happy because he's so happy. Yeah, so, that's so cool. Um, yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. That, and that's you not know, a, that's not an easy test to uh, to pass, especially first time around. So congratulations to him, and uh, and I'm sure he's he's made a um, sort of a mission for himself about learning everything there is to know about about real estate. He has. He has. It's. <laughs> Kind of funny, actually, too, because like recently, uh, you know, he was having you know moderate success for a young man his age in Brooklyn, which you know translates you know very very well for his future prognosis. Um, and uh, I hope he doesn't mind my saying this, but he uh, he made a move to to play with the big boys in Manhattan, and I think he got his butt kicked a little. Bit. <laughs> so oh he's well, like figuring out whether or not to take a lesser position in Manhattan or go back to Brooklyn and stuff like that. But it's funny and it's beautiful because you know starting with my mother, who was a Vietnam War widow, who really, really threw out the plan that had been invented for her. He's really just following a long family tradition of taking what other people expect of you and throwing it out the window. And I'm just, I couldn't be more proud of him. That, that's great. And it's wonderful to hear. So congratulations to him. And I, I know I want to get into with you um, some of the specific things that, you know, that you're involved in GRASP, uh, Global and Regional Asperger's Syndrome Partnership, Next for Autism, your opportunity. 2012 to um, to uh, to speak in front of Congress, uh, some of the books you've written, consulting, but I'm going to go a slightly different direction just for a minute or two over here because because um, I have a it's, it's just when you again going back to that diagnosis in 2000, one week apart from each other, I don't know that there's that many other 
parents and children who've had that particular experience. Um, I know there's a lot of research going on when it looks, you know, looking at genetics and, and you know, what comes into play because there is really no uh, exact, you know, defined final understanding where everybody says, okay, we're done with research, we're moving on now. Um, but so in, in terms of that week, can I ask who was diagnosed first? He was. He was. So can you describe whether that was a, you know, what, what were the feelings? What were the emotions going on, especially when he was diagnosed, but then a week later you were? Was that very um, impactful for you and maybe for him and or other family members when, when there was a realization that there was this, this additional connection between the two of you when it came to the diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome? Because you'd lived with it, obviously, for, for a much longer time period of time. So can you just describe what that period, that that specific week or surrounding couple weeks was like? I can certainly try. I would say that, you know, like most of us that aren't trained as teachers or clinicians, that, you know, when we're parents or when we're individuals, that, you know, when this stuff, you know, comes into our lives, that we're all idiots. And, you know, we're susceptible to all the dumb stuff that the Internet can throw us, as well as the good stuff that the Internet can throw at us. And I had never heard these words before. You know, I'm like, Asperger's, what is that? But the more that, you know, you end up reading prior to the doctor's appointment, where, you know, they wave their magic wand and and bless you with this word. The more that I had read about, you know, the condition, um, and I cite Tony Atwood's first book, not his big second book, but his mm-hmm. first book from 1998, Asperger's Syndrome, that it's, it's not a gradual realization that this is going to be you. Um, it hits you like a Mack truck, mm. that this is what has always been going on and that people made incredible mistakes in interpreting. I mean, you have to remember that, you know, uh, it's not the quote-unquote label that ostracizes you from, from people. It's the behaviors. And so that's why the label is inherently important for people to get, because if you don't have a word to explain why you're so clearly different from everybody else around you, you're inevitably going to go into the negative. But I was never actually like that. I was, a, you know, dare I said I had, you know, Ivy League graduate scholarship, but I was a little bit of a street kid to start. And I think that that really, really helped me to avoid a lot of the lack of self-esteem or the depression or the anxiety that a lot of my fellow um, Spectrumites had, you know, coming from, let's say, the same era. Um, and especially, you know, when if I had not, by the, by, by the time the diagnosis came and everything that I had read, I would have really been thrown for a loop if he hadn't given me the diagnosis because it just made absolute sense. Interesting. And, you know, in my life, at least, I'd always been thought that I was incredibly talented. And I realized as I'm like reading all this stuff, holy cow, I actually wasn't as talented as people thought I was, but I'm glad they made that mistake because <laughs> I had opportunities that other people on the spectrum just did not have because of this mistake. And so, you know, there's this group of people that think, oh, Carly's like a, a tell it like it is guy. He's amazing. And there's a group of people that think, oh, Carly is such a jerk, you know, yeah. because of the things he says are so rude. And I actually, of course, I'm going to go gravitate towards the tell it like it is guy crowd because they like me and I want to hang out in a community that appreciates me. Mm-hmm. But at the same point, all through those years, Eliza, I knew both sides were wrong. And I knew that somewhere out there, even myself, that nobody really got me. Mm-hmm. And you carry that with you. And I think what you instead think to yourself is, well, you know what? Okay, I'm a jerk. 
big whoop. If I do good things with my life, if I dedicate my life to helping people, which, you know, you're, you know, bringing clean water to 81,000 people in an area in which children are dying every day. Mm-hmm. So I'm okay. Right. Then, then that excuses me for being a jerk. And then this doctor comes along and he tells you, guess what? You're not a jerk. This is about your wiring, mm. not your character. And I wish I had the words to tell you and your audience the biblical weight that gets taken off your shoulders. Yeah, amazing. So um, we have to take a short break and then come back. And I, 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 but that is uh, that is a good good place to take a moment just to take that in that biblical weight that gets lifted when 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 you're given that that uh, commentary or that diagnosis from the doctor um, where you've already decided to do good work with your life. And then all of a sudden, that other piece completely shifts. So very cool. Thank you for sharing that. We're going to come right back and hear about uh, uh, several of those other additional things that you've gotten involved in that I think carry forth your uh, your passion for continuing to do good work. And um, so we'll be right back. This is One in 59, a radio show on uh, a talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. And we'll be right back. Have you driven by Anderson Center for Autism? Have you ever wondered what we're all about? Well, we're a state-of-the-art educational program. We're a nurturing home away from home. We're a community resource. We're a training center for people from all corners of the globe. We're a deeply devoted family of professionals who utilize evidence-based practices to optimize the quality of life for people with autism. And we're here for you. Call us today at 845-889-4034 or visit us online at andersoncenterforautism.org to learn more. Welcome back to One in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm speaking this morning with Michael John Carley, who, thank you, Michael John, for sharing uh, a lot of your personal experience and, and um, getting us up to speed on, on how your son is doing, uh, who was also diagnosed about a week before you back in 2000 uh, when he was four. But now let's just switch gears because you, you we left the first half of the show talking about how you had really kind of on your own decided to dedicate yourself to... Um, or your professional self years back uh, to doing good things for people. And that was a great way for you to feel good about yourself, even when there were signs socially and, and in other ways that, that somehow you were a little different and people had different different perceptions of you. Let's flash forward to what you're involved in now. I, I know that you, I think you were the first executive director of an organization called GRASP. Is that true? Did I get that right? That is correct. Okay, yep. and that's the Global um, and Regional Asperger's Syndrome Partnership. And then fill us in also on that and, and also on Next for Autism, where you are on the uh, board of directors. Sure. Uh, GRASP was basically the largest membership organization in the world for adults on the spectrum. I'm not sure if it still is or not, but uh, at the time, around 2001 through 2003, the emphasis was only on children. There was absolutely no emphasis being paid to adults. And I think it was just because when you become an adult on the spectrum after having been a kid on the spectrum, you've developed masking techniques, you know, you had these life experiences, which make you a little bit tougher to treat in a therapeutic context or even diagnose sometimes because of all that. And I think that there was just such, you know, we were so, you know, new to our knowledge of all this stuff that there was this attitude of, well, you know, we can only really take care of the 
kids, you know, because we don't really understand this grown-up population. You know, maybe hopefully when these kids become grown-ups, we'll know a little bit more. And I'm one of those grown-ups, and I'm thinking, no, you know, we're not going to, you know, just disappear on you, you know, and stuff like that. Um, and when I was acting as a parent, more so as an individual, and trying to learn what this funky German-sounding word Asperger's meant, um, I stumbled across uh, a support group in Manhattan, which was run by a very kindly grandfather uh, of a kid with AS, and there was like six people on the spectrum in the audience. And I went to a couple of meetings, got a little bit of what I needed, just I'm thinking as a parent, you know, okay, it's time to, you know, leave. And uh, the woman came up to me who uh, had organized the whole thing, and she said uh, to me, uh, Harry is stepping down. Would you take over the group? And I was still doing the big project in Iraq, so I hemmed and hawed, but obviously, long story short, I took it over. And mm -hmm. not because I was doing anything brilliant. I really wasn't. But simply because of the fact that the audience could trust that I, as the facilitator, would get them. Mm -hmm. Because we all had the same juice. It was just suddenly not a doctor-patient relationship anymore. Mm -hmm. Now suddenly it was peer relations, you know, a, a concept which has worked for breast cancer survivors or returning war veterans. Yeah. And instead of six people at a meeting, there were 45 people at a meeting. And instead of meeting monthly, we were meeting three times monthly. And the clinical world started to see what we were doing and took notice very quickly. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of the genesis that erupted with that. And when I left in 2013, we had 28 chapters in North America and about 8,000 subscribed members, as well as, you know, tens of thousands on social media and stuff wow, like that. So wow. we'd really hit a nerve. It was yeah. just really right idea at the right time yeah. more than, you know, me doing anything brilliant. Um, Next for Autism is, was a wonderful, wonderful um, uh, sort of an end of a journey, I think, for me and the relationship that I had with a woman named Eileen Lehner, who is just this brilliant brilliant mind. She uh, runs a nonprofit. that being next, which is 50 times bigger than Kraft was. And so, you know, I could never hold a candle to her as an executive director. Um, but it was really spiritually important as a relationship because next really is all about services. And I, you know, growing up, you know, as a, you know, seemingly progressive individual, you know, I, started to notice one of the things, you know, immediately in the autism world was this incredible emphasis on research. And I do love research. I have a great relationship with the Organization for Autism Research out of uh, D.C. Mm -hmm. But at the same point, because of the word use and because of the stigma, we were battling hot and heavy um, over org organizations like Autism Speaks that were painting our lives as being infinitely less worthy than their lives. So, um, you know, we got into the autism wars, you know, and... Next was really wonderful because it was composed of a lot of those Autism Speaks people. And, you know, I, as a you know, semi-trained diplomat, was always trying to look for bridges. I used to have a great relationship with Mark Roythmayer, their first yep. uh, Autism Speaks' first president. Sure. I mean, for lunch, like, every six weeks. He and I were good buddies, and we still are. Um, and suddenly, you know, here's this thing, you know, about services. And I've been all for services because I've always believed that research – is the passion of people that whose kids have all their service needs taken care of. Mm -hmm. And that's not where we need to be spending 5% at most of the money for, for autism research. You know, 95% of it goes into that medical stuff. And that's not going to help the average working family with a child with autism for at least 50 years. Mm -hmm. And I think the only thing that I get a little frustrated by is when they promise those families, hey, walk in our walk because it will really help your kid. 
help us raise money because it'll really help your kid. Not until your kid's 65. And so that's just really disingenuous and kind of crummy on my, on my part. So here's next. And all they care about is innovative service delivery, innovative service programs, you know, innovative design. And I'm just like, oh, my God, this is wonderful. Not only do I believe wholeheartedly in the mission of the organization, but, you know, here I am working with people that we've been on opposite ends of the fence on other areas as well. This mm-hmm. is absolutely fantastic. And, you know, it's all been the brainchild of Eileen and a woman named Laura Slatkin. And I have to pump them up by saying that it really started with a charter school that they wanted to start for their kids because there was really nothing appropriate for them. Mm-hmm. Um, well, they did not uh, give themselves automatic entry into the charter school uh, because they had founded it. They said it's got to be a lottery system. It's got to be fair. And the lottery system happened and neither of their kids got in. Mm-hmm. And they still supported the school. Mm-hmm. And they still started the organization. Yeah. And for those who don't know the name Next for Autism, it's probably more easily recognized if I tell you that uh, we're the organization that basically puts on HBO's Night of Too Many Stars that used to be on Comedy Central. Right. And most people do know that. That's gotten that's gotten the yep. word out very much. I, I am uh, I know a lot of the people that you're mentioning and, and uh, remember those stories. And I think I even maybe had the chance way back when to, to visit the school. So, um, you know, I think you're hitting on a really important point which is that there's um, I, in my role at Anderson um, which uh, is, is specific to fundraising and and uh, you know running the foundation and the development department um, I come across a lot of people who call us up and say well I want to raise I want to do a fundraiser for autism and what over the years it's been a great conversations with people helping educate them about the differences in all the different organizations that sort of have autism in their name but some are research based some are some are really service providers um, some focus on children. At, at, when you're talking about grasp, I think that time frame was definitely when there was a huge um, kind of need to bring awareness uh, about the fact that you don't outgrow autism. Um, the needs may change, like mm-hmm. you said. Uh, people may manifest in different ways. The symptoms may manifest in different ways. But um, but uh, I was I gratefully uh, had the opportunity to be part of many conversations going on throughout all of New York State, um, including some of the people that you were talking about just now when. And we were trying to really um, think about and, and figure out how best to draw awareness, um, not away from the needs of children, but to also be inclusive of the ongoing needs uh, for adults. And that's still a conversation that's happening. And, and um, so so I'm glad to hear that you've been a part of all of these things. We have to wrap up, unfortunately, in about a minute. Um, so I know that there are books that you've written. I know there's consulting you're involved in. I know that you have many more stories that you can relate and people should hear do you have a website or, or something where we could we could share that where people can go to get more information about either how to get to know you better, maybe um, engage you for speaking engagements or or consulting or just a little bit more about who you are and, and the rest of your background? Let's see. Do I have a shamelessly self-promotional website like everybody else in the audience? <laughs> yes, I do. Yay. www.michaeljohncarly.com. So pretty easy to remember. Uh, Carly is with an E. Why John is with an H, so hopefully uh, your listeners will be able to get there and find out a little bit more about, you know, not just about me, but I think, you know, where we've been. 
you know, in this long, long road and where hopefully we're going. Absolutely. Well, uh, let me reiterate that. Uh, MichaelJohnCarly.com. That is the website to go visit. Um, Michael John, you are always a pleasure to hear speak, um, whether it's in person or on the phone. Um, I, I think what you're doing and your background is just unique and exciting. And I'm thrilled that you remain involved in uh, in all of these areas. And I look forward to hopefully um, a chance in the near future to, to say hello again in person, because I do think way back when we probably did cross paths um, uh, many years ago. So thank you so much for being I, on the show. I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> thank you so Are much you for kidding, being Eliza? on the show. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate uh, it. It's my pleasure. Uh, this is 1 in 59, the weekly talk show on topics related to autism spectrum disorder. I'm your host, Eliza Bozenski, And remember, Anderson cares. You've been listening to 1 in 59, a presentation of Anderson Center for Autism. Join us for another edition of the show at the same time next week.